concept of institutional autonomy actually dates back to the Cold War period after World War II. And there was a famous uh, Supreme Court decision in 1957 called Sweezy versus New Hampshire, in which Justice Frankfurter actually quoted from an academic conference that was convened that year by universities in South Africa. What he talked about was what he's called the four essential freedoms of the university to determine for itself who may teach, what may be taught, how it shall be taught, and who may be admitted to study. I'm Andrew Seligson. And I'm Marisol Morales, and you're listening to the Compact Nation Podcast. How are you doing today, Andrew? I am doing reasonably well. We just had a brief power outage. It turns out that most of my life is dependent on electricity and, you know, it incited immediate panic about how much charge I had in my phone and my laptop. But then it I came know, back. I saw the text. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and you were only one of thousands who received those right. texts. You know. Awesome. Uh, I'm doing well. I found out that I... Uh, tested negative for COVID, which is good because my son just recently tested positive. Thankfully, he's okay and mild case, but, you know, it's a scare, especially when you have, I have my parents uh, in the household and they're older. And so uh, it's just that time. And, um, you know, unfortunately, my family has experienced uh, deaths as part of um, COVID um, during this time. So um, grateful for my son being okay that so far we're, we're all negative uh, now in the household and um, trying to keep it that way. Yeah, I think we've we've gotten to the point at this where almost everybody, I think, has people in their family or close friends or otherwise connected to them. And uh, yes, so glad that it uh, looks like it's mild and hasn't made its way to you. We're obviously happy about that. And uh, we're all just trying to stay safe and keep staying home. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So especially as we go into um, the winter, um, for us in Chicago, it's starting to get dark at like 3 o'clock uh, p.m. So that kind of sucks because, you know, by 6, you f- you're feeling like it's midnight. But uh, But it's all good. It's our rest time. It's our rest time. Yeah, we, we're similarly uh, far east in the time zone, right? That's what does it in Boston. Like uh, in wintertime, you realize we basically live in Greenland out here. You know, it's like we're sticking out into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. The yeah. sun is somewhere out west. It's leaving us behind. Uh, yeah. I was on a, uh, we were doing a site visit with the university that, uh, we're hosting one of their students and um, the person doing the site visit uh, is Puerto Rican. So she went back to Puerto Rico for um, quarantine. And so when she got on the Zoom call, I immediately was like, are you in Puerto Rico? Like, cause it's like sun and you know, all the lush greenery. And yeah, I was, I was a little jealous. Yes, but we have exciting things happening at Campus Compact, Melissa. We do. Do you want to share with our listeners um, kind of what we've got on the docket? Sure. Uh, One thing we can mention is people should check out compact.org where they can find the uh, newest round of Impact Award winners. Uh, We have... 
faculty members, community engagement professionals, institutions that were celebrating for their contributions to the common good, their work connecting students and faculty and staff with communities. And uh, so check those out. It's uh, we won't run through all the winners, but I can say just extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. And we always feel incredibly fortunate to learn about it and really to have the opportunity to share it with our whole network. That's one thing I wanted to share. Second thing, the Newman Civic Fellowship nominations are open, or as we like to say, nominations open. Uh, Newman Civic Fellows are extraordinary students, emerging civic leaders, people who have shown uh, a commitment to and a real potential for being catalysts for positive change in their communities. So if you are a president, or if you know one, uh, they're the folks who nominate on behalf of the institution. And so we'd love to uh, see the terrific students and, and get connected to them that way. So you can also go to compact.org to learn all about that and figure out how to submit a nomination. And I will also share one last uh, tidbit from Compact Nation, which is our webinar series is in uh, full steam ahead. It's mode, something like that, full steam ahead mode. And again, if you go to compact.org, you can find all the details and register. And so we hope to see you at some of those events. Yeah. Uh, in addition to that, we'll be launching uh, a virtual Engaged Scholars Initiative. Um, so we're excited to be getting that out shortly so folks can apply. This program is geared towards early career faculty and community engagement professionals uh, focused on um, equity, diversity, and uh, social justice and community engagement. So please uh, be on the lookout for that. Awesome. So I had the opportunity to um, sit down and go, well, Zoom a conversation uh, with some folks from the Council of Europe uh, and um, folks on the this side of the pond uh, around a book titled Academic Freedom, Institutional Autonomy, and the Future of Democracy. So this was um, book 24 uh, from the Council of Europe. So they've been doing this for a while. Um, and they got together and um, developed this book. And we had some contributors from the US, including President John Alger from James Madison University, who's um, on our board of directors, as well as Ira Harkavy uh, from the Netter Center. And so we were able to have a really interesting uh, and dynamic conversation about academic freedom and institutional autonomy, all of that within in the uh, context of democracy. And so thinking about the ways um, that those topics are meaningful right now as we're, you know, kind of reawaken to the fragility of democracy and the importance of, of these concepts um, in holding and the responsibility of higher education uh, in holding um, a democracy. So check out our um, interview now. How are you doing today? Awesome. Great. So we're really excited to have you on our Compact Nation podcast. And so kick it off um, by asking you to introduce yourselves to our listeners um, and what your contribution to the book, Academic Freedom, Institutional Autonomy, and the Future of Democracy was. Who wants to start us off? 
Um, hi, so my name is Lydia Deka. I am um, currently uh, an advisor to the president of Romania um, on education and research. Um, but previously, I was involved uh, in the Bologna process um, as the head of the Bologna process secretariat. The Bologna process, as you might know, uh, um, is, a, is a regional initiative to um, harmonize or to bring uh, together to, to make more readable higher education systems across uh, 48 or 49, I think now, <laughs> European states. Um, so I had this honor uh, between 2010 and 20, 2012. And then I uh, was uh, in Luxembourg doing a PhD on internationalization of higher education. But I came back here in Romania in 2015 to join the presidential administration and basically um, coordinate a, a large scale program called Educated Romania, which basically wants to uh, devise a vision and a strategy for education in this country towards 2030. My contribution in the book was on the complex role of public authorities when it comes to institutional autonomy and academic freedom. And I mostly focused on the conundrums that they face when they try to safeguard both, or uh, better said, um, not a step on one while trying to safeguard the other. Um, and I think my case study of Romania shed some light um, on conundrums that um, developing higher education systems um, face, especially in transition countries, so countries that switched from, uh, um, you know, an autocratic regime towards democracy rather recently, so just a few decades ago. Awesome. Thank you, Maria. Uh, John, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you. Uh, so I'm John Alger. I'm the president of James Madison University, which is a comprehensive public university in Virginia in the United States. And it's named for James Madison, of course, who's the father of the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Uh, and I have a background as a higher education lawyer, including several years in the National Office of the American Association of University Professors, which was founded over a century ago as the champion of academic freedom in American higher education. And so I wrote a chapter for the book on current challenges to institutional autonomy or what sometimes is referred to as institutional academic freedom in higher education, specifically in the United States and the impact on our democracy. And I would just mention that in our nation's jurisprudence, institutional autonomy or institutional academic freedom is sometimes in tension with the academic freedom rights of individual faculty members. So that's been an interesting conversation in American law over a number of decades. Okay, thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Shur Barikan. I'm head of the education department at the Council of Europe, which is a European intergovernmental organization uh, devoted to democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. Uh, we have uh, 47 member states, so we're European in the true sense of the word. Um, I've been involved with the Bologna Process European Higher Education Area for quite some time. Worked with Lydia also there. Um, and um, I'm one of the co-editors of the book with Ira Harker and Tony Gallagher, uh, and also co-wrote a chapter where we try to explore 
several of the aspects of um, academic freedom and institutional autonomy. So that was basically my role. Thanks, Anaira. Hi, I'm Ira Harkaby, and I'm the director, founding director of the Netter Center for Community Partnerships at the University of Pennsylvania, and also an associate vice president at the university. I happen to chair the International Consortium, uh, um, which has worked uh, very, very closely um, uh, with the Council of Europe since 1999. Um, the, uh, the work that we have done together is to advance the role of higher education um, as a democratic partner with communities, with societies, and globally. Um, and so the International Consortium for Higher Education, Civic Responsibility and Democracy has been a, a collaborating partner in that endeavor. And we have been part of at least um, seven or so of the books that have come through the Council of Europe series. And it has been, uh, it was my pleasure to be a co-editor with Shura and with Tony Gallagher from Queen's University. I had the pleasure of, of co-writing a chapter with Shura, an introductory chapter to the volume and also a chapter um, focusing on democracy and the purposes of higher education in the United States, which focuses on academic freedom and institutional autonomy is connected to university focus in the United States historically on higher education for the public good. Uh, so that's been my role. Wonderful. So let's, uh, let's get into this. Um, so this is questions for both Serge and Ira. So the Council of uh, Europe uh, Higher Education Series, um, the book series has been around since 2004 and has produced 24 books that focus on key issues in European higher education policy and higher ed's contribution to democracy. So why this book at this particular time um, and how did this particular volume come about? So if I could lead off on that, maybe from a European perspective, I think we tended to take academic freedom and institutional autonomy for granted in Europe. Uh, it's it's there among the underlying values of the European higher education area, but we've never been very explicit about them until now. And then we saw around 2015, a little before, that actually we could not take these values for granted anymore. And the, I think there are two reasons for that. One is the kind of reasons that um, end up on, uh, in the news headlines, uh, political development in some of our member countries. Certainly the situation in Hungary is a great concern, especially with um, the Central European University, which eventually was uh, forced to move to Vienna. Um, but also in uh, Belarus, uh, which exceeded to the Bologna process in 2015. And of course, we know uh, what's going on there. I think another aspect of it, though, is that if you discuss, especially institutional autonomy, which has tended to be the focus in Europe, you discuss the relationship between public authorities and higher education institutions, which, of course, has a very different uh, aspect in Europe than it does in the US. Uh, Europeans would traditionally um, accept a much stronger role for public authorities than you would in the US. Um, but 
this involves a number of issues uh, that are not on the headlines. Part of it is what's the proper balance. You know, the, I think most Europeans would agree that, uh, for example, uh, a public authority would have the right to um, stimulate higher education or set up an institution in a part of the country uh, where um, that is underprovided. And they would agree that the same public authorities would have no right to dictate the content of study programs. But there's a lot between us. So we're, what exactly are you talking about? What's the implication of financing models? Um, and uh, what are the implications of, of legislation, for example? So those are some of the issues that we try to explore. But then we thought, when you ask about why, how did this book come about, we thought it would be interesting to explore our longstanding cooperation with our U.S. partners and friends. Because in the U.S., uh, I think more there's more emphasis on academic freedom and perhaps less on institutional autonomy, whereas uh, in Europe it's the other way around. So simply we thought we could learn a lot from working together on this too. Great. And can you um, talk a little bit more about, um, since we don't really use the language around public authority, what you mean by public authority? Well, a, a frequent uh, a frequent synonym is government, uh, but I think it's you know f uh, a public authority can be a national, it can be a regional, it can be a local. So it's if you want the the elected uh, representatives of the people at a different level. Great, thanks. And Ira, the the same question for you in terms of um, how this book came about and and where you saw the contribution, particularly from the U.S. side. Sure, this is a very good question. And let me um, pick up on Shu's point about um, how some of this though, is rooted actually in the now global um, partnership and um, cooperation we have. Um, we've had a series of global forums over a number of years, and uh, we're, we're about to, to have one uh, on the issues related to sustainability and, uh, and, uh, and issues related to uh, reaction to COVID-19 and how to bring that together in the future. That will be a, a next one, which is being worked on currently. Um, but we've had a number of these. And when uh, there was a conversation raised about after uh, what, on, what we should look at, this theme of academic freedom was becoming, and institutional autonomy was becoming very significant in terms of the European conversation. And uh, uh, Sher posed this to the group. Um, the international consortium is not just the United States, it actually includes Australia, it includes uh, England, it includes um, the, uh, Ireland, and it includes South Africa. Uh, and all of those countries felt people engaged in the leadership of U.S. higher education on the international consortium felt that this indeed would resonate. It would resonate for the issues of academic freedom, but also for the issue, and uh, as, as sure indicated, but also the same questions of crisis that's occurring in our democracies. It's now much sharper than it actually had been. So the concerns of illiberal democracy and issues of what the United, with the role of higher education should be and had to be at this time uh, became very significant. And what we saw as was gathered is we have partners and we brought in, and sure will help me if I miss one, um, but the International Association of Universities played a key role in that meeting, the Magna Carta Observatory, the Organization of American States participated. And as a result, there was a, such a clear interest. And the interest I think was around these, this question of why academic freedom was so essential 
and institutional autonomy to democratic societies now and going forward. It is also interesting to note, just as a side note, that as in around this period, we are very fortunate that we now have a, a global uh, cooperation on higher education for democracy in which the Council of Europe and the International Consortium for Higher Education, Civic Responsibility and Democracy would join now formally by the Organization of American States and the International Association of Universities. So this meeting was catalytic in terms of even growing the global uh, partnership. Uh, I think that just to, to, to make the, the point about the interest at this time and why this was so significant, uh, there was a sense, again, globally, and I'll turn to the United States, that democracy was in crisis, that things that is sure indicated were accepted were no longer fully accepted, that the growth of an anti-science, anti-knowledge, anti-democracy developments in our societies required a strong response for higher education, and that institutional autonomy and academic freedom were essential for universities to fulfill the role, which, at least in my judgment, engages democracy at its core. That is in, in the idea that the purpose of colleges and universities, certainly in the United States context, is to educate ethical, empathetic, engaged um, citizens of a democratic society and to advance knowledge for the continuous betterment of the human condition, which includes advancing democratic life. So democracy was at the very center of what the universities have been about, should be about. They haven't always functioned that way in the United States. But the feeling around the world that universities more than ever were crucial for democracy. Democracy was under threat. Academic freedom and institutional autonomy were crucial for universities to contribute to democracy. Finally, I want to add just a point that certainly motivated U.S. colleagues and I think European colleagues, although I can't speak for them, uh, but in organizing this meeting, the connection of academic freedom and institutional autonomy to the concepts of academic and institutional responsibility. The purposes of academic freedom uh, are really connected to producing knowledge for the common good, for improving society, and the same with institutional autonomy. So the argument being is that, that, that these, it was crucial to look at academic freedom and institutional autonomy precisely also to look at what our responsibilities are if we have academic freedom. What does it mean? What is the translation of that? And the translation was felt to make those contributions to the wider society. So I think it's the context of the threat, the significance of these issues, certainly the free speech debates in the United States, but also the role of universities themselves in advancing democratic life for its students and for uh, communities in its wider society motivated us. And I think motivated, interestingly enough, uh, much more than I had actually felt would happen, colleagues all over the world. This was really a crucially important meeting uh, with crucially important themes. I guess if I could just add, I think that there are two broad lines of argument in favor of academic freedom and institutional autonomy. Uh, one is uh, that you can't really have a high quality education and research unless you can question, uh, you know, receive truths. Uh, and the other is you cannot really have democracy unless you can do that. So mm -hmm. unless you have uh, academic freedom and institutional autonomy, you cannot really have democracy and you cannot really have full academic freedom and institutional autonomy except in a democracy. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. And do you feel, and this is open to anyone, that higher ed uh, in the U.S. and uh, in Europe has stepped up to to sort of challenge those those threats? Um, has it been a reflection point for um, higher ed to rethink its its role or remember its its role? So I, I, I would say certainly, you know, the book that was produced, I think, was is quite important in the meeting. I think that there is a more of a searching going on now. Certainly, uh, we've seen globally because of COVID-19 and the uh, horrific disparities that that has made evident to everyone, the uh, high levels of, of, uh, of injustice, of of, of inequities across a variety of areas, the the uh, vi the visibility uh, that is seen also with the continuous murders of Black individuals in the United States has raised these issues of social justice, of of equity, of anti-racism, increasingly to the center of conversation and debate. Um, sure, and I have actually written about this together with, with Tony Gallagher of Queens and Hilja um, von Slant from uh, the International Association of Universities. So again, we're having a book that will be focusing on that coming out shortly. But, the, 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 but although, um, in my judgment, this has become increasingly significant, um, higher education has to step up a lot more uh, and a lot more significantly. And I would say, though, that the, the, the academic freedom of, uh, and institutional response, uh, institutional autonomy issue, as should indicated, is absolutely crucial for us to step up effectively, number one. And number two, it is something that should be part of what is insisted upon as we step up. That is, it is a core component of the kind of university and society we want, where there's issues of, of open inquiry and pursuit of knowledge and inclusivity and diversity and human rights and democracy and the rule of law as part of the values we stand for that academic freedom and institutional autonomy are absolutely connected to and essentially you can't achieve those values without academic freedom and institutional autonomy and those values themselves are crucial um, to academic freedom and institutional autonomy so yes we've stepped up i've stepped up more since then but we have a lot more stepping to do is my you know, long-winded response. Yeah, right. Um, so that leads me to my question for President Alger. So your piece looked at the four essential freedoms of institutional autonomy and how that autonomy works to support and sustain democracy and promote the public good. So can you share a little bit with our listeners um, about those four essential freedoms and how that plays out in higher education? Um, and then what do you see as the current challenges to that autonomy and then bright spots or signs of hope in the maintenance and expansion of that autonomy? Yeah, so that uh, the concept of institutional autonomy or institutional academic freedom actually dates back to the Cold War period after World War II. Uh, and there was a, a famous uh, Supreme Court decision in 1957 called Sweezy versus New Hampshire in which Justice Frankfurter actually quoted from an academic conference that was convened that year by universities in South Africa. So it's interesting to see the international connections there. They were at the time dealing with the apartheid system in that country. Uh, and what he talked about was what he's called the four essential freedoms of the university to determine for itself who may teach, what may be taught, 
how it shall be taught, and who may be admitted to study. Uh, so in, in American law, these aspects of institutional autonomy, as I said, are sometimes referred to as institutional academic freedom or freedom that universities have with regard to government authorities. Now, even though many of our colleges and universities are, of course, public institutions, we also have many private institutions as well. This, this framework has been used to argue that colleges and universities should be able to make certain types of decisions without either undue government influence or other forms of external influence to preserve a free and open marketplace of ideas on campus. Now, these freedoms, of course, have always had limits and have often been threatened because our own campuses reflect the political and social disputes of the times, whatever that may be. So we had in the 1950s concerns with communism and the Red Scare, in the 1960s with civil rights in Vietnam, or the 1970s with Watergate. And in recent years, these challenges have certainly included an erosion of trust in institutions generally, including higher education, as well as in science and expertise more generally. There's a a strong uh, historical tradition of anti-intellectualism and anti-elitism in the United States that dates back all the way to our founding as colonies that rebelled against authority. Now you think about those first three freedoms, they all relate to teaching in the university setting. Who may teach? These are threats to hiring and retaining faculty who might have controversial views, especially given the current uh, largely conservative critique that American higher education is sort of a bastion for liberal indoctrination on issues like systemic racism or climate change. Um, when it comes to what may be taught, we have government officials and other members of the public who complain about provocative courses on things like Black Lives Matter. And again, saying that they are uh, politically indoctrinating our, our students. And when it comes to how the subject matter is taught. There are questions about things like evolution in biology classes. Is that taught, taught as fact uh, or as theory? We have organizations that have formed in the United States like Turning Point that encourage students to record professors in the classroom and to share controversial comments on the internet. Um, now we know that higher education needs to be a place or we believe very strongly where faculty and students can challenge the status quo and can offer different opinions and perspectives and discuss and debate those perspectives. That's really fundamental to preparing students to be educated citizens who can participate in democracy. And the threats are not just from government or from politicians, but more and more of our support at public and private universities comes from private donors and corporations and they, in turn, can also seek to control or influence who gets hired, uh, what they teach, what courses are being offered, which can also be a threat to academic uh, freedom. And then when it comes to that fourth freedom that was identified by Justice Frankfurter, Frankfurter who may be admitted to study, that's also under threat in the United States. We have an ongoing debate, for example, in our country uh, with regard to affirmative action. Can institutions consider race as one of many factors in admitting students from historically underrepresented groups? And when you think about the high stakes in admissions to selective colleges and universities, we had this varsity blues scandal recently where wealthy families tried to bribe university officials to admit their children to highly selective schools. 
So those are the threats that we are seeing. But I do think, as Marisol indicated, there are some uh, bright spots. So quickly, I would mention three things. We have accreditation standards, a quality control system to prevent undue influence, uh, whether it's from politicians, donors, or others outside of higher education from getting too involved in decision-making about these four essential freedoms. So that's one important essential check on external pressures. Secondly, our own Supreme Court has recognized that universities should have flexibility in these areas, including with regard to who gets admitted to study in order to achieve the educational benefits of a diverse student body. That concept continues to be under attack even after the Supreme Court has ruled on it multiple times, but it is one of the cornerstones of our jurisprudence in higher education. And lastly, I would say coming out of the pandemic and with the new presidential administration, I think there is some hope that there will be a renewed appreciation for the role of expertise in society and therefore perhaps a little greater deference to academic decision-making. I think we've learned that there's no substitute for science in our country and hopefully in the world. So going forward, we are hopeful that there will be a renewed understanding of the importance of that kind of expertise and the fact that it needs to have freedom and flexibility in higher education. Right. Thank you. Um, I have a lot more questions about that, but I want to move on to Dr. Decca. Um, your piece discusses uh, the difference between academic freedom and institutional autonomy. Can you discuss um, a little bit more about the conundrums that you identify, particularly with public authorities or governments face with guaranteeing academic freedom and institutional autonomy? I think that fits really well with uh, what President Alger just spoke to. Um, so um, in terms of how I identified um, the difficulty of public authorities to actually balance and help guarantee the two, um, I think we have to start from what Jur said, and that is um, that in Europe we have much more detailed guidance, uh, legal, legal guidance, um, uh, guidance in the form of European recommendations when it comes to institutional autonomy. Um, when it comes to academic freedom, I think we are just testing the waters. Uh, we, I mean, in the Bologna process, um, there is no list of things that are that could be checked under um, um, academic freedom. So it's a matter of how each national system um, looks at this, and it's a matter of how each academic community in the end um, guarantees and manages to guarantee this. And um, we have a lot of research recently looking at how both concepts, in fact, have to deal with freedoms. Uh, institutional autonomy has to deal with the institutional freedom of defining its mission, organizing itself, um, you know, use its funds to fulfill its, uh, its goals and so on. Um, but it also has to do with curricular freedom, for example. Um, whereas um, academic freedom has to do more with individual freedoms as part of an academic community, be it as a professor or a student. And how do you make those two balance each other out um, is a continuous challenge. I think the U.S. has seen a lot of these um, cases in which the individual freedom of, or of a faculty member or, or 
of a student has come in contrast with institutional autonomy. We have a very specific situation here in Romania because our system is more centralized than most European countries and definitely more centralized than you would see in the US. Um, so our university tradition comes from the French, from Napoleonic times. So universities as uh, uh, pillars of building the state, the national state. Add to that about 50 years of communism and you have a double centralization effect in which a lot of institutions which do not have enough capacity look up to the government for guidance for various things. Now, we also have in constitution a phrase saying um, institutional autonomy is guaranteed, but that's it. It doesn't go into explaining what that is, and it leaves up to the, the subsequent legal framework to define that. We have a bit more <laughs> in the law of education, so it talks about um, a way in which a university defines its mission, organizes itself, um, and uh, organizes its program, so the curricular freedom, but it leaves much to interpretation things like admissions, uh, financial issues, or hiring issues. So those are more state-controlled than you would see in other parts. Um, but still, in that context, Romania in the past 30 years has been undergoing this, uh, this quest to find its academic roots when it comes to higher education and uh, to sort of uh, go in the more Western European direction of increasing autonomy. So what you have for example, um, is sometimes an inability of academic communities, and this is the first conundrum. I'll, I'll just give an example. Um, you have a professor, you had a professor um, in one of the well-reputed uh, universities in Romania who in his law course had uh, anti-Semitic and promoted anti-Semitic views. Now, there are a lot of complaints to that, uh, but the university ultimately didn't do much. They convened an ethics committee, they decided, you know, they'll sanction him, but they didn't actually fire the professor. The state could not intervene without trespassing over um, institutional autonomy, despite the fact that this was a big press scandal. And in the end, the professor retired uh, because he was quite old, but in, I mean, you could see a clear conflict and a clear conundrum of the, what do you do? You sort of step over institutional autonomy um, and you stop, uh, you know, hate speech in the end in the academia or you respect institutional autonomy, but then, you know, you have other rights which are being um, impinged. So that's one example. Another clear example is, for example, the, the, the quality assurance framework. We have a tradition which is again different. Um, and especially in countries that had uh, problems with the trust in the quality of education, you have a, a quality accreditation system which goes into accreditation of programs and even has a list of subjects that should be taught per uh, program. So if you go into engineering, about 80% of the courses in your engineering program will be set by a quality standard. Now, most of you know, universities all across the world will say this is an intervention in institutional autonomy. Whereas in Romania is still regarded by many as a way to ensure quality. So how do you balance this public need for trust and for quality with real um, 
freedom for universities to actually, you know, be creative and innovative and respond very quickly. Um, so yes, we do have a lot of issues with uh, with that, and I think um, also um, starting from something that George said, um, I think once democracies are stable and mature, I think balancing out these two elements, institutional autonomy and academic freedom, becomes easier, or you know, it, it becomes a more balanced discussion. Uh, whereas when democracies are threatened by various things, um, so populism, nationalism, autocratic tendencies, um, you see this reflected in academic communities as well. And I think then, in, in that case, the, the conflict between institutional autonomy and academic freedom becomes much more obvious. And we could talk about, um, you know, concrete cases in Europe, but I think, uh, well, I'm not sure we have enough time to do that. So um, I think my question for, for all of you is what are some of your um, hopes and wishes for institutional autonomy and academic freedom um, where you're at and um, as you think about this uh, international uh, connection, right? Uh, higher ed across the, the world. What are some, some of your hopes and dreams for for academic freedom and institutional autonomy. Oh, in the words that we don't have to uh, question them anymore, and 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 the word that we can take them for granted, uh, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. I think uh, Lydia's point about well-established, mature democracies is a very good one, and I think what you've seen over the past few years, in fact, that. Some of the democracies that we thought were established and mature may not have proven to be so well anchored after all. So um, I think if we take democracy for granted, uh, we're in trouble. Um, so, um, and again, I, I would want to distinguish, I think, between the kind of threats to academic freedom and institutional autonomy that make the headlines. In other words, you know, the likes of uh, the case of the Central European University, which is effectively closed down in Hungary and had to move its teaching to to Austria, the uh, kind of attacks on um, academic freedom, institutional autonomy, and on students and staff that you see in Belarus, and the more everyday issues like um, you know what does it mean for academic freedom and institutional autonomy uh, that your university, uh, as John said, enters into a contractual relationship with a major donor uh, who may, for example, require um, that uh, research results not be uh, openly published uh, for a period of time because they finance the research. Um, you know, it's some, sometimes I think one of the, when you talk about academic freedom, uh, sometimes you may confuse the freedom of expression and academic freedom. Um, now you may hold any opinion you like, in a sense, without a relation to facts. And I think we've seen that more and more frequently also in public life on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, but if you exercise your academic freedom, um, that freedom of expression is tempered by um, the standards of the discipline. But that immediately raises the question of, if that is true, 
how then do you develop the standards of the discipline? I mean, there, there are some obvious examples. Um, Lija mentioned the case of anti-Semitism. We've had cases in Europe where uh, academics have denied the reality of the Holocaust. In the country where I live now, France, there was a very uh, famous case, I think, in the 1980s, Robert Faurisson. He was a history professor uh, at one of the Lyon universities uh, and also an active Holocaust denier. He was actually dismissed, uh, um, but because he violated the standards of a discipline, the, the, the reality of the Holocaust is not, uh, not in, uh, was not in doubt. Likewise, uh, I mean, you, you may you may uh, allege that the earth is flat. You may it may not be a strong claim to credibility if you do so, but you're free to do so. Now, if you're a professor of astrophysics, uh, that may be more problematic. But then, on the other hand, you have somebody like um, Ignaz Semmelweis, uh, you know, who in the 19th century uh, came up with a revolutionary theory that if actually surgeons washed their hands between operations, it might actually improve patients' health. Now, that was not well received by the medical community at the time. And, uh, you know, he may have been hounded and actually was hounded by the medical community, and yet he was right. So uh, it's not always uh, an an easy uh, equation. Just add, uh, sorry, perspective, I, I hope for the future that we will continue to have space in higher education for many different points of view, including minority views that might not be popular, that might not be politically uh, prevalent, and that we can model discussion and debate that's based on research, facts, and evidence. I think that really is part of what we stand for in higher education, that, that there will continue to be room to challenge the status quo uh, I think the example Sure just gave is a, is a great example. We know we don't know everything, and we need to leave that room uh, to have the humility to continue to explore different areas of knowledge and, and research. And, and finally, in the United States, when we talk about the quality control aspect and how we do accreditation, it's a system of peer review rather than government review. And I think that's really important and valuable because that gets at this idea of having standards from different disciplines and from colleagues who can bring that kind of expertise, not political uh, expertise, but expertise in different disciplines uh, to the table when they are reviewing uh, the quality of academic programs. So I think those are some cornerstones that I hope we can preserve and enhance going forward. I, I would certainly agree strongly with both what John and, and Sure indicated. And I, I would like to just put a little context, which is also context, I think, uh, for the meeting itself. Um, to, to understand what's hoped for is partly in the context of the depolitization of these um, issues. In the United States, hopefully things, they will actually change now because during the Trump administration, there has been a, a weaponization of, of issues of free speech. You know, it's, it's, and this is, it, it's, the question is, it is true that if I'm demonstrating and I'm doing things that are preventing you from speaking, that's an issue. It's also an issue to prevent people from demonstrating. There's also the right of people to protest there also is an issue where the Trump administration and conservative legislators have attempted to develop curricula that would, in, in fact, in approaches that would test universities on free speech. 
Now, the Trump administration backed off, but there are instances of state legislators taking this on very strongly, where, in fact, there's two or three um, uh, instances and they can sanction universities, taking away the, the freedom of universities to function independently. I think the, the hope is that there'd be a depolitization and the placing of universities and academic freedom and the current movement forward uh, and institutional autonomy as central principles of a democratic society. And what Schur pointed out is absolutely crucial. We had thought that in my case, in belief in the United States, that we were a much more mature democracy than we were. And in fact, we have faced such a difficult period where our fundamental values and rights and the best components of, this, of, of American history have been challenged and corrupted. And the worst demons of American history, the depth of racism, the racism that came with our founding that has been a, the singular most pressing sin in our society, was raised up as a virtue by the president of the United States, as a virtue by the president of the United States. So the issue is I hope for is that these politicization of these issues will cease. And I'll raise one other thing I hope for, which relates to Ligia's point. You see, I think it's absolutely crucial that there be free inquiry and openness, but there are questions of universities standing for certain universal values and issues of whether it is appropriate at universities to allow or enable people to teach, not just that the world is flat, which is disciplinary, but values that indicate people are inferior, to, to promote racism, to promote anti-Semitism, those issues should not be, in, in my judgment, we have to stand for the highest human values. And universities need to stand for the kind of world we want to create. And in that kind of world, there are in fact values that I think are crucial, such as tolerance, equity, diversity, inclusivity, open inquiry, democracy, that are a floor, and I learned this from the Council of Europe, that are a floor, a values floor that universities stand for. While based above that, every disagreement you want to have, every disagreement, but you shall not call a student inferior. You shall not claim a race is inferior. You shall not indicate that individuals have no right to free speech. Those issues, it seems to me, are taken out of the realm of not debate, but indicate we stand for these values. And that would be my hope, that universities would be increasingly clear that they're open institutions, which is one of the core values, but in fact, they encourage inclusive, open communities for every single person in that community, in the society, and make free speech and, um, and academic freedom and intellectual autonomy, non-political issues, but core to the very function of the institution. That's what I would hope for. Thank you. So, yeah. Yes, I was thinking about uh, what differentiates uh, free speech from um, academic freedom. And I think Jur um, put it quite well that um, academic freedom allows you to say what you think is right, but would be subject to the scrutiny of your epistemic community. So you would be judged by peers. Um, and if what you say has merit, then it would be acknowledged as such. Otherwise, it would be um, you know, criticized according to the to the you know politeness of academic rules, and I think um, that is something that allowed universities to be bedrocks of of progress. This 
civil, polite way of um, interacting and subjecting yourself to the argued, uh, well-argued feedback of, of peers. Um, so what we see in terms of breaches um, or you know, misuses of this right um, is not, I mean, are not uh, instances in which there is someone who has an argued discussion with peers. They're usually monologues or they're usually things which are said in front of people which are just, um, you know, in the position, in, in, they are not in the position to react or to defend themselves. A, prof, a faculty member, well-established faculty member in front of his or her students, um, you know, a, 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 superior, a superior hierarchical superior in front of, you know, people which are lower on the administrative scale and so on and so forth. So um, I think if we are honest and if academic communities have a way, a good way of self-regulating, um, they should be able to spot um, those breaches and actually defend the values upon um, which academic freedom and institutional autonomy are built. Um, and maybe one more thing. Um, we see um, universities as those places in which um, we expect the right ideas to be broadcasted. Uh, so we, I mean, I think in many countries, people look up to universities in general because they think if they can't trust the media, if they can't trust what other people tell them, they will be able to trust what someone in a university says, or at least this is the, the assumption. Um, I think if universities are not able to provide that safe place for academic debate, and if they're not able to lead in the in you know uh, what constitutes filtering fake news from you know scientific facts, their role in society will be diminished. So I think it's not a matter of choosing to be involved um, in you know. What, what are now societal challenges. It's a matter of maintaining the role of lighthouses in terms of knowledge. Um, and with that in mind, um, I see many universities who understand this and are trying to take the lead, but I also see many who prefer to, you know, uh, withdraw and wait for better times. And I don't think this is a moment for them to withdraw and wait for better times. Let's put it this way. If I could follow up on, on, on some of the points that have been made, I think one of my hopes would also be that universities could stimulate enlightened public debate. Uh, and I think we're seeing less and less of it in the sense. I mean, in, in Europe, we don't talk much about race uh, as a concept. Uh, that's obviously central to the U.S. It's much less central as a concept to it doesn't mean that we don't have an issue of racism, but it's it's linked to migration, it's linked to refugees, and it's very much linked to identity politics. So, um, you know, the, part of the shift from um, toward identity politics is that um, you're not open to the notion that you can learn something from those who are not like you. And I think that's a real big challenge in, in many European countries. And you see it also uh, when you see resistance to, to migration, to refugees. Uh, you don't think that people who are different from you can actually come with qualities and 
qualifications uh, from which you can benefit and from which you can learn. So uh, certainly stimulating public debate, public intellectuals uh, would be, um, I think, a, a major issue for higher education. One of the issues I, I, I should, we should have made clear, actually, is that the meeting we held actually did pose what they'd like academic freedom to look like because we did a declaration that was passed by the entire body. It called on, and this relates to Lydia's point, it called on higher education that you can't retreat on these issues. It called on international associations that they had to be engaged in these questions. It called on public authorities. It called on groups like the International Consortium and the, the, and, uh, and the uh, Council of Europe in their own collabor- in their own partnership to express these ideas. And that it was the, the what we pointed to was precisely a situation in which steps were taken to assure academic freedom and institutional um, autonomy while simultaneously making clear our societal responsibilities to utilize those absolute crucial baseline treasures for higher education and society for the common good and for the democratic development and advancement of, a, of our societies in the world. And um, one of the things that was very powerful about that meeting was a declaration that, as the colleagues here know, was widely um, discussed and and shared around the world. Uh, And these are very crucial. And part of the call for that was that these were so essential to democracy and so essential to university life and university contribution that they should not be um, um, uh, taken for granted, but they also needed to be upheld and made central and not be political football. So um, there, there, that declaration really did, I think, powerfully point to the kind of uh, how we'd like to see academic freedom and institutional responsibility, institutional, excuse me, autonomy going forward. Right. All of you talked about sort of the connection between institutional autonomy and academic freedom connected to, to democracy. And um, thinking about the ways that democracy has not been equal to all people, right? Um, You know, this current period may have been a shock to many in terms of the um, sort of precariousness of of our democracy or the fragility of our democracy, but um, I would venture to say most communities of color in the United States were not shocked. we're like, oh, you finally realize that this doesn't work for, for everyone, uh, that uh, you don't like this. Well, we haven't liked it, you know, for hundreds of years. Um, and so th- thinking about the ways that we speak about the role of the university when the university itself has been an exclusionary mechanism in society, where we talk about our role as universities as educating citizens, but the vast majority of citizens are not, especially you know, in communities of color, are not participating in, in, in university um, life. And so where do you, I guess, make up for that tension in, in the ways that we uphold universities as these um, sort of bastions that, that hold um, kind of democracy's foundation, but that have been you know, especially in the United States since their founding, part of the marginalization, oppression, right, uh, and sidelining of of so many communities of color. But I would say in Europe, how do you reconcile that with the history of colonialism and oppression that 
Europe has, many European countries, you know, have um, engaged in, especially in the global south. Um, how do you how do you hold those tensions? Where do you speak to to those, um, especially when um, we're seeing the realization for many of the fragility of of democracy, um, but that is not a realization uh, for communities that I'm a part of or a new realization. Well, I might offer a few thoughts from the American perspective. First of all, Marisol, um, and I think back to the academic freedom statements of the American Association of University Professors, which always talk about that balance of rights and responsibilities. And those responsibilities have to include issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion if we're going to fulfill our mission. So first, I'd say we can't be the isolated ivory tower, that we have to be engaged in solving real-world problems and working with partners outside academe on these issues. We call that, at my institution, being the engaged university with community engagement and civic engagement, applying knowledge to real-world problems like structural racism, uh, systemic racism, and climate change. Uh, Secondly, I think we have to lead by example, that we have to create environments in which people from diverse backgrounds really can live and work and learn together. That goes to the heart of our educational mission to say that diversity and educational excellence go hand in hand. We are better and stronger institutions when we can bring in people from diverse backgrounds who can learn with and from each other together. And that's really critical. The broader we open the doors, the better and stronger we are in terms of our educational mission. Third, I'd say we have to be honest in examining our own role, as you've said, in reinforcing inequalities in society. Are we really providing access and opportunities for students of all backgrounds? If not, why not? What are the barriers which may be hidden to full access and opportunity? What can we do about those barriers, especially because higher education is the gateway to success in so many professions. So we really do have a responsibility to look at our own role in our society. Are we addressing inequality or are we uh, reinforcing it, even if we're not doing that deliberately? And finally, I would say in terms of education for life and citizenship, that we have got to emphasize the teaching of certain skills that students need to be engaged citizens in democracy. And that includes things like critical thinking, communications, problem solving, teamwork, and working on diverse teams, leadership, ethical reasoning, and resilience. These are the skills that students are going to need to address these problems, both in higher education and in society more generally. So that goes not just to those rights, but to those responsibilities that come with academic freedom and institutional autonomy. The um, uh, statement that John made, I think, was just terrific. And uh, just on the AAUP statement in 1940, it made absolutely clear that academic freedom is connected to the common good. It was stated directly, and that's why we have it. And the issues of what of the situation it seems to me that there are just two footnotes to what John indicated. One issue, Marisol, I think, is the the question that all institutions um, need to be in, in the United States need to be much more diverse and inclusive, including institutions such as my own, which has made great strides under the current president Amy Gutman to become more diverse and inclusive. But that needs to increase significantly. It needs to increase, not just because it's the right thing to do for the future of all citizens, is that we'll have a better learning community 
we learn better from diversity. Um, I, um, I did a lot of work in this when I worked was chair of a committee for the National Science Foundation on equal opportunities, equal opportunities in science and engineering. And it was clear that the literature indicates that greater contributions in learning occurs in diverse, inclusive environments. It's the right thing to do. It's necessary, but it's also, it's, 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 it makes the university better. And then again, my foot, other footnote to John is we need to exemplify um, in diverse, inclusive, democratic communities ourselves. We don't, but we need to. And the third piece, again, touching on what John said, is my last footnote. It is engagement with our communities, but it's also learning from and with them that we need to have, in this wonderful phrase of our colleague, uh, Nancy Cantor, the Chancellor of University, Rutgers University, Newark, we need to have communities of experts. And that means it's not just all the knowledge is on campus. It's in, we want to share and learn together with our communities and be involved. And I know that Sure has been taking a leading role uh, as the council has in initiating discussions in Europe along universities and their local mission democratically, just as the Anchor Institutions Task Force in the United States, which, which I chair, has taken that issue on about learning in locality, working in locality, and the necessity for, these in, for institutions to understand that their environments are resources for development and improvement of both the community and the universities, and that we need to share, if we're gonna develop genuine knowledge to solve our most pressing problems, you need to have communities of learning and communities of action in which we take on those problems together. Well, I, I certainly um, agree with, with everything that John and Iris said. I think it would perhaps add, since you asked specifically also about uh, colonialism, decolonization, I think certainly uh, European universities have been part of, um, or many European universities uh, you know, provided support for and underpinned uh, societies that did engage in colonialism. Um, and we need to take a, a hard look at our history and also ask what consequences are action. At the same time, I think we also have to underline that um, universities and academics played an important role in getting, starting to get rid of uh, colonialism. Um, certainly the, the, uh, you know, the part of the uh, movement against colonialism came from universities and from academics, including um, people from the colonies who had had an academic education in, in the metropolis, as it were. But I think the other aspect of your question is also, how can we make sure that uh, underprivileged groups um, have better access to higher education? I think one important uh, thing is, is to question our notion of quality, which tends to be uh, defined by disciplinary standards, and that's important, but it's not necessarily disciplinary standards alone. I think it might be useful to distinguish between the quality of a given program or institution and the quality of an education system as such. First of all, I don't think you can fully solve the question of um, equal access unless you start early. So higher education is the part of it, cannot solve it alone. But I think it's also important to underline that you cannot have a high quality education system if that system doesn't cater to all st potential students. Um, so that means 
allowing all students to develop their talents, but also to develop their aspirations. So you have people from um, backgrounds where education is not part of the equation. Um, just take the uh, example of Queen's University of Belfast, which works with a community center that's about a mile from campus. And what they, uh, people from the community, uh, the local community says, they walk past Queen's every day, but we never dreamed of walking onto campus. Well, uh, Queen started working with leaders in the community, uh, not by sending university professors to teach high school kids. That wouldn't have worked. They asked Queen's students to uh, work with the local community students because they were role models. And they said, if I can make it, you can make it. And it's a small step, but it's an important step. I think Sher's point is just so important about this issue of our responsibility for the education system and working with our local school becomes crucial if we're going to make the changes of access that we talk about. And it's an obligation and a benefit to universities to partner deeply with local schools and education, as we saw in Queens and, and, and other places in the United States and around the world. But that's crucial. And again? Yeah, maybe just to explain. I mean, Romania is a very interesting case because we were not, we are not a former colonial power, um, but we do have a lot of underprivileged kids. So we do still have this rural versus urban or small urban versus big urban divide. And um, there are, I mean, the, the chances that you would go to higher education if you come uh, from an underprivileged family or a family without a higher education background are tremendously low. Um, and we have this ongoing societal debate about the role of universities. And after 50 years of communism, in the 30 years of democracy that we had, we had this, um, I would say, you know, um, at this problem of the past where communism decided that anyone could go to higher education, especially if you had a good dossier in the communist sense. I mean, if, you're, if your parents were workers and not coming from the, you know, former bourgeoisie. So people reject the notion that anybody could go into university. They, they want universities to be elitist in the sense of training the elite of the society and in, sen in the sense of being so-called merit-based. So you have this societal desire to see the universities as, you know, the, the places where people with the highest potential uh, are, but at the same time, they fail to recognize the problem that universities become uh, multipliers of inequality. And one particular point where this happens is in the training of primary and secondary school teachers. So all of our teachers almost are trained in universities, obviously, but these universities have very few portions of their programs dedicated to equal opportunities, you know, uh, seeing when a kid is in danger of dropping early from school, uh, mitigating, uh, you know, um, segregation factors, just all these things that have to do with ensuring equal opportunities for underprivileged children. So what you have, in fact, is teachers who might mean well, but don't have the tools and the knowledge of addressing the problems of, of those children that need them the most. So I think we are 
In the process of changing that mindset, I mean, we have affirmative action. We have places for, for kids coming from the rural areas or for Roma students and so on and so forth. But we have still to change the societal mindset about the role of the university and the difference between equality and equity. This is still not an internalized um, you know, difference um, in, in our societal debate. So th there are many facets to this problem. And um, I think history has a lot to do with it in our case as well. Um, but I think you know, the, the, the way in which we cooperate with other higher education systems in Europe and in, well, internationally, generally, helps us understand better, um, you know, um, what we should strive for in terms of leaving no um, kid or young person behind. Great. Well, thank you all so much. I appreciate um, the time. I think we had a great conversation and I'm excited to, to share this with, on our podcast. So um, we hope that you enjoyed um, that conversation that we had and you can um, check out also um, the book and um, we'll post a link to the Council of Europe along um, in our podcast uh, page as well. Um, so in our last and closing se segments, we always like to think about things that inspire us and um, provide us with hope as we move forward. We know that this has been a challenging year, and so um, part of doing this work is also believing in the um, potential of the human condition. And so we're going to do things that make you go, ooh. So, Andrew, what makes you go, ooh? Well, you know, a lot of things make me go, ooh. I, I'm actually going to do two. Uh, and they relate to my twin obsessions. Uh, longtime podcast listeners will know that I am uh, obsessed with basically two things in life, soccer and urban planning. Um, so I got one from each. So this last weekend in the top five European leagues, which are kind of like the big leagues in Europe, England, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, three Americans scored. And that's the first time three Americans have scored the same weekend in the top five European leagues since 2005. One of the guys who did it is the son of one of the guys who did it the previous time, uh, Gio Reyna, Claudio Reyna's son. And these guys are all very young. They're great. It's this incredible rising generation of uh, American soccer talent, and it's very exciting for American soccer fans. So that inspires a lot of hope because it's years of joy ahead with this generation of, of American soccer players. That's one. The other one is uh, there was just a survey done in Massachusetts because the... Um, the state, whatever, was saying they were about to do these huge transit cuts because obviously ridership is way down because it's a pandemic, which maybe has been missed. And uh, so there was a survey of Massachusetts residents. And it turns out there is overwhelming support for continuing robust transit service, even among people who do not ride public transit. People understand that having subways and buses and trains 
is good and that the reasons they're not being ridden now don't mean we should reduce service for when people get vaccinated, it's safe to go back out, whatever. That inspired some hope in me that people are developing a broader understanding of what it's going to be like to have sustainable places and that they're not just thinking about themselves, they're thinking about what actually would make for, for a broader, good, successful community. So that was exciting for me. Inspired some hope in my fellow citizens and in the future of transit in Massachusetts. Marisol, what is making you go oof? <laughs> um, you know, as you were talking, it made me think about uh, two things. One, there's like some beer commercial with some guy that knows like all of these like random facts, and I felt like this in that beer commercial. Uh, but two, uh, I was thinking about uh, a friend of mine who started this amazing like co working space uh, for women of color in my neighborhood in Chicago, uh, in Humboldt Park called the Honeycomb network and how um, even in the midst of sort of this pandemic, it has become a space of like, um, I think, inspiration and hope. And uh, this was a longtime dream of, of hers. And the space is beautiful and phenomenal and she's gotten a lot of press recently and I'm just so excited for her vision and her connection to community being manifested through this space because it's focused on like healing, co-working, community building, training and development um, and it's a space for and by um, women of color and uh, it's a really powerful magical space and so thinking about um, in like what this pandemic has taught us about what to appreciate, the importance of rest, uh, the importance of of um, comforting spaces, um, and really the importance of mutual aid and community. And um, so that has me really hopeful. That along with um, January twentieth. So yeah, it's a fine date on the calendar of democracy. That is right. That is right. So excited for that uh, change and also what that change means in terms of leadership and who's who we're seeing in, in leadership positions. So very excited about that. All right. So um, we are at the end of our podcast time with you. But um, again, we're just kicking off season five. So continuing to check us out at any of your uh, favorite podcast listening apps. Uh, please rate us and review us. And uh, until next time. Thanks all. Bye. Bye-bye. Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, or the general vicinity. Our hosts are Marisol Morales and me, Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Leeper, a.k.a. Lady Leeper of Steventown. Music is by Andrew Savage. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag Compact Nation pod. Thanks for listening. <laughs>